This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 214, Betrayal, the Burma Road, and the Battle of Nomahan. Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists had been driven out of East China. Overpopulated and resource-poor Japan had taken what it needed. But now what? China wasn't surrendering, and Tokyo had spent million of yen and lost thousands of men to get to this point. But that was just it. There was no point, no fixed goal achieved, and no solution. Chongqing was now the new nationalist capital, and it was so far away. What's more, the trade-off for Japan, for all of this, had been incredibly lopsided. Having passed the National Mobilization Law, the legislative branch of the government, the Diet, had lost control of the military and of the people's lives, as everything was now a function of the armed forces. Even worse, the China incident that became an all-out war had caused friction between Japan and other countries. Stalinist Russia was now supplying China with war material and hundreds of thousands of rubles each month. Soviet pilots were actively fighting against Japanese aircraft, as were Chenault's American pilots, and the tension that had risen between Washington and Tokyo could only bode ill for the island nation. To be sure, the two countries had enjoyed closeness previously, as when the United States sided with Japan during the Russo-Japanese War. The Americans go for the underdog any time they can. But there were dark times, as in 1924, when Washington banned Japanese from immigrating to the country. It didn't help that the peoples of both countries literally saw life differently. For the self-described straight-shooting Americans, choices, questions of morality, were black and white. Not so for the Japanese. A person there was valued for holding contradictory ideas at the same time. The more, the better. It showed how complex the person and their thinking was. And now, the United States, a vast country with extra territory, 
and the resources that came with such, was angry at the island nation that had simply copied the Western nations during their colonial periods. Honestly, the two sides could not understand where the other was coming from. By now, Japanese Prime Minister Prince Kanoye had figured out that the Japanese military did not have an overall plan for dealing with China, certainly a still defiant China. The men in uniform were simply rolling with the tide or the wheel of causality, and now that tide or wheel had bogged them down in an ever-widening war. But as Japan's Supreme Command rarely told the Prime Minister what was truly going on, he had become just as much a passenger as so many other Japanese. As Wuhan had fallen, other areas were lost by the nationalists as well. And as Tokyo could not get Chang to submit, the example of Canton's blockade would be expanded to try to strangle the Chinese from the outside. Some 600 kilometers or 372 miles south of Wuhan sits the vast port city of Canton, now Guangzhou. As Nanjing had been enduring murder and rape on a massive scale, Tokyo, or rather the local military leaders who were truly leading Japan's war on the mainland, had no intention of occupying the city to the south. However, as the war was spreading, the many Japanese nationals at Canton were no longer safe. Hence, a massive evacuation was needed, and this was being considered in August of 1938. For now, this was just seen as a straightforward removal of Japanese citizens, until the China incident could be brought to a conclusion. However, as there were already Japanese ships in the area, attempting to stop Chinese goods from leaving or any assistance from entering, Chinese aircraft had already run sorties against the enemy vessels. The pilots were not accurate, but they did possess the respected German HE-111s, which, even worse for the Japanese, had the range to bomb the nearby island of Formosa, due east of Canton. On Formosa was stationed the first Rengo Kokutai, of the first combined air group, based at Matsuyama on the northern half. Those pilots were flying the new Mitsubishi G3M Type 96 bomber, which was expected to take the fight to the enemy in their cities and airfields. The Japanese picked up intercepted radio signals that the nearby Chinese air force might try to bomb their airfield on Formosa. In truth, this was either a red herring to scare the enemy into inaction, or Chiang Kai-shek, considering his options. He had spent much treasure on his air arm, and would not waste it willy-nilly. Either way, it was decided on a preemptive attack by the Japanese on Formosa. The Japanese 5th Destroyer Division, just outside the entrance to Canton, was asked to give weather updates and air patrols. With this information, Lieutenant Commander Nagashi would take 12 G3Ms and attack the airfields to the north and east of Canton Center. While other units went after the Xiaoguan works, which made spare parts for the aircraft. The attack planes lifted off early on the morning of August 31st. To the east of the city, two aircraft 
were destroyed on the ground. The other planes of that wing hit the hangars and other facilities. Considerable damage was done. The unit that bombed further north also had a successful raid. The Chinese, however, did manage to launch their own aircraft from the 29th Independent Pursuit Squadron and take out one attacker, but the rest of the Japanese made their way home safely. As the local Japanese command considered the area pacified, at least in regards to threats from above, they began to look around the general southern area for other targets, bigger targets. Until then, their planes were grounded. No use risking them until something worthy was agreed upon. Even better, two aircraft carriers, the Hasho and Raujo, were en route, having finished up helping establish a beachhead at Shanghai. But that decision did not take into account further Chinese air operations. After the Japanese raid in late August, more Chinese air units were moved to the coast, and these planes began harassing the blockading ships of the 29th Destroyer Division, stationed just off Hong Kong, itself just 50 kilometers southeast of Canton. That is, harassing instead of sinking, because of the skill, or lack thereof, of the Chinese pilots. There were a few near misses, and the Japanese light cruiser Yubari was forced away while attempting escort duty, but that was the extent of the Chinese air threat. This was in mid-September of 38, and the Japanese should have considered themselves lucky. Had those Chinese pilots been better trained, numerous ships could have been lost. Either way, the Japanese air arm of the 1st Combined Air Group was asked to rid the skies of enemy planes. Their planes set off again late on September 15th, but due to darkness, they could not find suitable targets. The next day, September 16th, brought back daytime raids, which hit and damaged another Chinese airfield. On September 20th, the two carriers, Hosho and Raujo, entered the local waters, and the next day, they launched their own raids. Going after the main two airfields around Canton, considerable damage was done this time by the more experienced pilots. Even better, the Chinese launched their own fighters, and a 30-minute dogfight was underway. By the time it was over, the defenders had lost two fighters and two scout planes. The Japanese, none. However, having stayed too long in the fight, five Japanese planes, Nakajima A2N or Navy-type 90-carrier-based fighters, ran out of fuel and had to ditch in the ocean. But the pilots were rescued. Later that same day, another raid was sent out. One Chinese fighter was shot down, then the bombers went back to the airfields to inflict more damage. Another two Chinese hawks were taken out, trying to defend the airstrip. Now that the air was owned by the Japanese, industrial targets were selected and hit. No Chinese aircraft rose to protest this. At the end of September, the Japanese pilots were able to add a few older Chinese gunboats to their list of victims. With the waters a bit safer for the Japanese, the two carriers returned home for refit. Their air groups were transferred to Shanghai. During early October, a larger Japanese carrier came on the scene, the Kaga, 
and her A-5M fighters went to work, clearing the last of the enemy fighters. To be sure, there were still Chinese planes in the area, but none would take off to give battle. With the way now clear for occupation, the Kaga, like her sisters, went home for a refit. The Japanese would soon land troops, and by December of 38, Canton would be occupied. Nearby British Hong Kong watched and waited. Hello everyone, Ray here. Are you hiring, posting your position to job sites, and waiting, and waiting, for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. Once again, ZipRecruiter.com slash World War. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Getting back to central China, Cheng, Mao, and the Japanese settled down for a long war, which Japan, nor Cheng, wanted. Mao, on the other hand, saw opportunities in a breakdown of Chinese society. The military action, if one may be callous for a moment, of the last year and a half, was about to be exchanged for political intrigue, where no one could be trusted as well as competition of a different sort. Up to this point in Chinese history, the government did little to help or interfere in the people's daily lives. But as Chang and the nationalists were asking more of the people, Chang made it clear that the people in response should ask more of their government. Of course, he meant his government. So what evolved was a contest between Chang's government, Mao's government, and the Japanese occupying entities to see who could offer superior assistance in these troubling times and win over the most people. At first, the clear winner was Chang, as millions fled west to make for Chongqing. Problem was, the city nor the province was ready for such an influx. In fact, Sichuan province had been considered to be just outside China proper. But now, the area underwent a massive and rushed facelift. But the amenities could never keep up with the demand. In 1937, Chongqing's population was around 474,000. By 1941, it would be almost doubled to 700,000. By 1945, it would top out at just over 1 million. And those hundreds of thousands of newcomers would be bombed while they were looking for accommodations. But the heavier raids would come in the spring of 39, particularly in May. 
and life in Chongqing would soon evolve around those raids and the weather. Sometimes the people would have to stay in their shelters for days at a time. As for Mao's communists to the north in Yan'an province, some 800 kilometers or 497 miles away, they too were bombed, but not nearly as much as Chongqing. From 1938 to late 1941, Mao's community was bombed some 17 times, with 214 people being killed. As for Chang's new capital, some 5,000 people alone were killed during the most intense bombing of May 3rd and 4th of 39. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As stated, the nationalists, communists, and Japanese struggled against each other to have the people come to their part of China, which meant Chiang was spending vast amounts on propaganda, infrastructure, industrialization, the military, and refugee relief. Between 1937 and 39, his government's annual revenue fell by almost 65%. But he ended up spending almost 33% more than before the Japanese came to Shanghai. This shortfall was offset somewhat by creating levies on goods traveling within China. But as Chang and the Chinese communists were now partners, though not equal, the nationalists also gave the SGN border region government, named after the three provinces it consisted of, Zhangzi, Gongsu, and Ningxia, of which Mao was one of the major players, the equivalent of 180,000 U.S. per month. This went on until 1940, but then Stalin stepped in and gave the Chinese communists almost double that in one large payment. As more and more of the Chinese East Coast was being lost by the nationalists, there had to be another way of getting goods to Chongqing. So, back in 1937, Chang had worked with the British to begin building the Burma Road. Some 200,000 Burmese and Chinese would labor on the project until it was completed in 1939. At the time, Burma, now known as Miramar, was a British colony, and though the island nation in Europe was facing increased tension with Germany, it still wanted to help the Chinese against Japanese aggression. The road was 1,154 kilometers, or 717 miles, long, and connected East Burma with Kunming of the Yunnan province, 
itself located on the southwest border of the Sichuan province. Supplies would be landed at Rangoon, now Yangon, and moved by rail to Lashio, where the road started, and Burma. This road would serve China well, with all its imperfections, until the Japanese, again in trying to strangle the nationalists into submission, would close it down by a direct attack on Burma. Now that Japan controlled most of eastern China, as well as north China, it found itself having to govern those areas. Tokyo wanted their mainland possessions to pay for themselves, but that could only happen if the people returned, worked, and paid various duties. Therefore, the conquerors needed a local government, someone the Chinese people could focus on, instead of the foreigners. So the first Japanese-controlled government was set up in Shanghai on December 5, 1937. It would only last some four months, but already the Japanese were trying to replace Chiang's nationalist government in this city. Next came the reformed government of China, which got underway in late March of 1938. The announcement was made in Nanjing by its head, Liang Hongzi, whose career had declined as Chiang Kai-shek's had risen. But now Hongzi had his chance. After the announcement, the government, in its entirety, boarded a train and went back to Shanghai, which was nicer than Nanjing at the time. This hotel government, as it was called, because it took over the New Asia Hotel in Shanghai, would struggle on for the next two years, attempting to carry out Tokyo's desires. On November 3, 1938, Japanese Prime Minister Kanoye announced on the radio that it was his intention to create a new order in Asia, one where Japan and China would be equals, and together they would fight the true enemy, communism. Now, this was not canceling out Tokyo's earlier decision not to treat with the national government of China, but that the Prime Minister was open to talking if new personnel were in charge. This had been the moment Wang Jiwei was waiting for. Wang Jiwei, currently head of Chang's National Defense Council and the National Political Consultative Council, had, at one time, been Chiang Kai-shek's rival. Wang had known Chang's mentor and founder of the Nationalist Party, Sun Yat-sen, for the last 20 years of the latter's life. When he died, Wang and Chang competed for supremacy of the Kuomintang, which Chang ultimately won. Wang, for the good of China, gradually came back into the nationalist fold and began working with Chang, even though he thought the Generalissimo was not right for China, in that he was gathering too much power unto himself. Chiang could have easily argued back that China's numerous and independent warlords made that necessary. Either way, the two men were working together again. But Wang still held on to the belief that he was better for China and its future. Certainly now that Chiang remained defiant towards Japan, which could only end in their country's utter destruction. But now that a path to peace even a Japanese-dominated peace was open, Wang wanted to seize it. 
having sent a representative to the Japanese military on the East Coast. Near the end of 1938, the two sides had worked out an agreement. Wang just had to give his final okay, but the man hesitated. If he went along and began working with Tokyo, Chang would never forgive him, nor would the latter let the country forget what Wang had done. It was Wang risking everything, but the man was a patriot, and he just wanted the war to stop. On November 26, 1938, Wang's assistant, Mai Ping, brought back the terms from Shanghai. First off, the Japanese wanted recognition of Manchukuo, their recently created state to the north. But Wang would have trouble with this, as he was trying to make sure China was not broken apart. Next, the Japanese wanted compensation for the loss of lives during the fighting. But again, how would it look if Wang paid the enemy for a war they started? Japan then promised to end its extraterritorial rights, but would hold on to some territory, mostly along the coast and, of course, the north. Wang again would have trouble with this, but both sides agreed that the occupation would end two years after hostilities ended. And here was the main point for the Japanese. They wanted Wang to defect from Chang and head a more friendly government to Japan. What's more, this government would not be based in Japanese-controlled territory, but in Yunnan and Sichuan in the southwest, near Chongqing. There, the Japanese believed Chang must have many additional rivals, or outright enemies, and they would be glad to align with a Chinese government not affiliated with the Generalissimo. And as for Yunnan, that was where the Burma Road ended, so this more amenable government would help Japan shut that down. On December 19th at 3.15 p.m., Wang and his closest advisors boarded a plane from Chongqing to Hanoi. Now that the decision was made, they had to get clear of Chang's security forces before word got out. To be sure, Wang was not pro-Japanese, but he was a strong anti-communist, and to his eyes, Chang agreeing to work with those thugs was only another indication that he had lost his way. No, the Japanese could not be trusted, but at the moment, they had the upper hand. This was going to be a long game. On December 22nd, Prime Minister Kanoye made a statement that hinted that Japan would join China in friendship, economic cooperation, and anti-communism. But Chang then put out his own statement that Japan's new order was really code for enslaving China and then moving on to other countries of Asia. Then, on December 31st, a Hong Kong newspaper put out a statement by Wang Jiwei that said it was possible that Japan would give up its goals of invading and humiliating China if they themselves were treated with respect, and that Japan had to be told that China wasn't fighting against Japan, but trying to save itself as any country would. Many Asians reading this version of history could not go along with Wang. Instead, they chose Chiang Kai-shek. Furthermore, those Asians outside China were torn 
between hoping the Japanese would limit themselves to China and hoping for a Chinese nationalist victory, eventually. But China's troubles were not taking place in a vacuum. Nothing ever does. Back in 1931, Japan occupied Manchuria, which made Soviet Russia its neighbor to the north, and Outer Mongolia to its northwest. At the time, Mongolia, or the Mongolian People's Republic, was a communist state, allied with the Soviet Union. Also at the time, the Mongolians and Japanese could not agree where their border was between their two areas, the difference being some 9.9 miles, or 16 kilometers. In the spring of 1939, the Japanese cabinet ordered the Kwangtung Army to fortify Manchukuo's border with Mongolia and Stalin's Russia. It should be noted that the Kwangtung Army by this time was largely autonomous from Tokyo, intended to interpret orders from home as they saw fit. On May 11, 1939, a Mongolian cavalry unit of some 80 men entered what they believed was the western edge of their territory. However, the Manchu Kuoan troops relatively nearby saw this as an intrusion upon their territory. On May 14th, Lieutenant Colonel Yaozo Azuma of the relatively new 23rd Infantry Division chased away the Mongolian horsemen. However, they would return, supported by Soviet troops. A clash ensued which left Azuma's unit suffering some 63% casualties. Now, both sides build up their forces in the area, and a new corps commander, Georgi Zhukov, was sent in to lead the Soviet side. Zhukov brought with him motorized and armored forces and would, over the next few months, work out tactics that would serve him well in the future. On June 27th, Japan's 2nd Air Brigade attacked the Soviet airbase in Mongolia. The local commander had not sought permission from the Imperial Japanese Army headquarters back in Tokyo for this. But within days, the Japanese at the scene were ordered to expel the invaders. The Japanese attack, when it came in July, had dozens of tanks and thousands of men, but Zhukov counterattacked with even more tanks. As he did not have enough troops to support his armor, Zhukov's counterattack was mostly an armored one, but his units worked well together and destroyed many Japanese tanks and armored cars. The two sides continued to clash with each other, but on a smaller scale, and what dominated the various outcomes was that the Russians had artillery with a longer range, and the Japanese were having trouble getting enough vehicles to bring their men to the front. This resulted in several Russian victories. Again and again, the Japanese came at the Russian lines, but with little change to their tactics which meant they could never reach, much less break, Zhukov's lines. The Japanese casualties piled up. In early August, Zhukov gathered some 4,000 trucks and brought in massive reserves and more tanks. Probing the enemy's responsibilities, the Russians were handed a bloody nose when they attacked three times during the first two weeks of August. But Zhukov had found out what he needed to know. On August 20th, the Russians and Mongolians attacked 
with 50,000 men. The Russian center held down most of the smaller Japanese line, which allowed the attacker's wings to sweep around and surround the Japanese 23rd Infantry Division. Other Japanese units tried to free their comrades, but failed on August 26th. The next day, the 23rd tried to break itself out, but Zhukov's artillery was too much for them. By the end of August, the 23rd hardly existed. The Japanese were about to attack again when a ceasefire was negotiated. This conflict would be called the Battle of Galkin-Gol in Russia and the Nomohom Incident in Japan. While Zhukov was fighting the Japanese, Stalin was secretly negotiating with Nazi Germany. As it looked like the Japanese would go down in defeat, Stalin went ahead with the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, announced on August 24th. Soviet Russia and Japan would go on to formalize their ceasefire on September 15th. And now that Russia was relatively safe in the east, Moscow moved in and invaded Poland on September 17th, per the agreement with Germany. Japan's humiliation at being defeated by Russia, along with Chiang Kai-shek's continued resistance and now the non-aggression pact between Russia and Germany, weakened the argument of the Japanese army and its North Strike Group policy of taking the fight to Russia and taking its land. Now that Stalin did not have to worry about Hitler, he could, if needed, focus solely on any Japanese aggression. That was a recipe of disaster for Tokyo. So the Navy's South Strike Group idea of moving on Southeast Asia, specifically the Dutch East Indies, with its oil and minerals, began to dominate the military, which practically ran the country. Of course, this could lead to tension with Great Britain and the United States in the form of its Pacific fleet. Still, it was Tokyo's only other option. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So for those of you considering uh, membership, I just want you to know that I covered the Battle of Nomahom in, in the series on for the members. I went into minute detail. It was pretty fascinating um, how the two sides went back and forth. The Japanese never quite learning from their mistakes. They were thinking their spiritual prowess would solve all the problems, whereas Zhukov was a lot more realistic. Uh, he planned things out, and of course he had a, a lot more tanks a lot more men, but still he learned along the way, especially uh, using massed armor. So anyway, I'm going to get back to something I haven't done in a while, and I'll catch up to everybody, but I just want to thank the latest members who have come on board. Uh, there's Stuart Hathaway, Humam Hapkin, Panda Baby, who is Stefan from Denmark, James Smith, Glenn Conrad, Stuart Dalimar, Doran Zager, Ken Fisher, Patrick Woolbright. Uh, I'd also like to thank, uh, for donations, Mark Hunter and Jeff Lawley. He heard the uh, episode about when I had a car accident years ago, and he said, it's a little late, but here, let me try to help out. So thank you very much. And I would like to thank John Brenninger, I hope I'm saying that right, for buying a Churchill mug. Thank you very much. So for those of you who have joined up and you haven't heard your name in a while, I'm going to 
keep doing this until I get all caught up because it's just my way of saying thank you uh, for, for supporting the show. So there'll be another episode out next week. We are getting close to Pearl Harbor. As you can see, I'm kind of zooming along and then I'm going to slow way down as the tension increases between Japan and the United States, the trade embargo, all that good stuff. So uh, and then we'll slow down and uh, and build up to uh, to uh, Pearl Harbor. Take care, everyone.